Hey, everybody. Looks like it's going to be a cozy group today, huh? <laughs> You're the intrepid souls who made it to 345 and actually came to a presentation. God bless you. <laughs> All right, so I, just quick, how's the show so far for everybody? Enjoying the show? Seeing what you need? All right, have you been to a lot of seminars? So, what we're talking, you can all hear me, right? All right, I have been talking all day, so if I lose my voice, just throw something at me. Uh, my name is Jim McLafferty from DMWH. We are a material handling system integrator. We're on that side way down there. Uh, much like the other people you've probably spoken to on the show. So the topic today is a bit broad, but um, again, just a couple of details, is how to combat the labor shortage with the right mix of automation, or the best mix of automation. The reason we say best mix is because you can automate almost anything, but it's not necessarily the right way to do things. So, okay. Let's get the I, I walk around a lot, so that's why this is here. So I gotta keep remembering to hold my, my mouth. All right, welcome. Good to see you again. <laughs> okay, so first question. Can you guys find qualified labor? Yes, no, let's show of hands for no. All right, there we go. Because if you could find qualified labor, you're in the wrong seminar. You're not in the right place. Um, but let me ask you a question. How would you rate it on a scale of, say, somewhat challenging or extremely challenging? Who, who's got extremely challenging? Okay. Somewhat challenging? Okay, all right. So just using a oops, chart from MHI last year, you can see that 65% find the labor challenge extremely challenging, so 65, right? that's up to here. If I take it out to very challenging, I'm up at, uh, I'm sorry, you have 65% total. If I take it all the way out, I'm up at 90%. Everybody's having a problem finding people. Uh, you can see some of the other issues up here, this is very difficult to read, I'll just point out a couple. Some of these items here are a reflection of finding those qualified people. Okay? All right. This is just the warm-up stuff. All right. So, why is there a labor shortage? Okay. First of all, low unemployment nationwide, right? It's just tough everybody to get people nowadays uh, here. The economy's good, people are employed, the, um, you're gonna have just a tough time finding people and you're gonna have a tough time bringing people into this industry because it's manual work, right? It's shift work, it's manual, it's difficult, not everybody wants to do it, and if I have alternatives, I'm probably gonna do something else. Not that it's horrible job by any stretch, but it's not where people are going to be driven towards. Thirdly, and I had a great conversation with a guy about this the other day, aggressive poaching in different markets. And we're going to talk about some of the markets in a second, but what you see is some places where if a new DC is being, being uh, uh, set up, they can come out and immediately poach everybody by add, you know, adding you know, a couple of cents per dollar for labor hour to bring people in. Then some people are getting more aggressive even than that and coming in literally posing as employees in DCs, making friends, and then bringing them over to other DCs. We've heard a couple of weird stories along those lines, so it, nothing would surprise us any longer. By the way, just a show of hands, anybody here from a staffing agency or do staffing? Usually I do this presentation, I get some people there, and so I usually lean on them for some questions, so, okay. Um, there's an increasing number of DCs around the country. We'll talk about why, but well, we'll talk about it now. It's e-commerce, right? Uh, there are more DCs, and there are larger DCs, and larger DCs traditionally require more people, right? And also, you're finding them now to get closer to the customer, they're located in 
major metropolitan areas. So it's really exploding and there's more demand for those bodies in those same markets. Uh, one thing I do want to point out, I think it's probably on this next slide. There we go. Well, let's see, let's do this one first. You can see in the US, the yellow dots are e-commerce employment by um, 40 jobs per dot. So you can see where is it? It's in the areas where the major metropolitan areas are, in the East Coast, California, up in, uh, Pacific Northwest, and then the other major metropolitan areas throughout the Midwest. What's happening is that these are places that already had tough labor markets. And now I've got more jobs here vying for this, um, for that same labor pool. It makes it very difficult to find people, but this trend's not going to go away because everybody's putting their facilities closer to their customer for, for the very obvious reasons. All right, the loaded question. Will the trend continue? First, we'll talk about where we were back in the recession, 2009-10. We were down about 625,000 people in the warehouse employment world. Here we are, this is back in May. We're double. Okay. So everybody says, well, labor shortage, but you can't find people. Well, right, we can't find people because there's more DCs out there, more requirements for these people. So a lot of people have joined the industry, but we just need more. So again, show of hands, who thinks this is going to continue? I'll take that as a yes, as a, everybody thinks so, right? Well, the question is what rate's going to continue at? Well, uh, Deloitte did a study last year and came out with this one that from now until 2023, we'll grow another 850,000, uh, sorry, 850 million square feet of space. Old rule of thumb, maybe not 100% valid any longer, but pretty close is it's one person warehouse worker per uh, 100,000 square feet. So another 800 potentially 850,000 more people. Now it's probably discounted a little bit that tech includes some other industrial space, so it's probably closer to 750,000. But that takes that chart up to just a hair under two million people. So yeah, everybody's saying the trend's gonna get worse. Uh, CBRE, the real estate folks, did a nice study. Uh, it was a really good study with a really easy to figure out uh, conclusion. They, to offset this labor shortage, there's three ways you can handle it. One. Build your DC where there's no other competition. Okay. <laughs> two, find people from another industry. Uh, that's hard too. Or uh, put a mix of automation into the system. So, so at least they came up with that one at the end. The other two I could have figured out pretty quickly. All right. So uh, before I get into this, let me ask, uh, this is just throw it out there. Automation, what levels of automation do you folks have in your DCs now on a you know, low, medium, high? Anything low? Okay. Anybody else on low, the low automation? Okay. Anybody highly automated? Okay. All right. So I'm going to talk a little bit just about how automation has been justified and how it is being justified now. Traditionally, it was the old labor savings ROI. Just crank it out. I can save X number of people by making an operation um, automated as opposed to manual. Uh, still very valid. Uh, come back. Find a two-year, three-year ROI, five-year in some cases. Uh, you can still do that, but we're seeing that's falling by the wayside. And the reason is, is because since you can't get people, it doesn't matter if you can justify replacing them with, with uh, automation. You have to go to automate because you just can't find the bodies. So, although important from the finance guys and all, it's the next couple that are really driving this up. I have a bad habit of always looking at that right in front of me, which I always forget is right there. <laughs> um, Customer requirements. So you have a lot of customers 
who now are driving the automation because of the way their material, the product has to be handled. We did have one customer that had um, cell phones. They didn't want people touching the cell phones because they for the pilferage. So they went to automation. They needed it for that reason, but they also couldn't find bodies. Uh, sometimes you see it's just customer service requirements, meaning shipping. I can't physically pick the number of orders I need in the time table I do with the people. I need automation to goods person workstations and such things we'll talk about. Uh, third is safety or employee welfare. So you see some automation going into places which are tedious manual or um, tedious or dangerous work. Uh, truck loading in the summer in Atlanta is kind of tough. Uh, and then some other internal uh, key performance indicators. You'll see sometimes when there's a requirement, I got to get one operation done earlier than another, so I can't do it with humans. I have to put some automation in there. But the key, what I tell everybody on justifying now, is you have to understand your operation and understand how you can justify it up the ladder. All right. Oh, yeah, and then my bouncing ball. So don't ignore automation. Now, yeah, I'm an automation provider, so of course we don't want you to ignore automation. However, um, what study after study after study has shown, people who avoid automation at any level, it's material handling or back office stuff, um, will run into problems down the road because you get quickly nowadays behind the eight ball. You can't catch up to your competitors and to your customers' requirements. So it's just more of a broad base. Don't avoid it. Don't run away from it. Don't say, I'll never need it because you might. Even if you choose not to do it, at least look at it and, and consider the automation side of things. All right. Okay. I like this one too. Of those three broad categories, traditional, cutting edge, and data collection, when you guys think of automation, what do you think? You walked around this show, you probably have seen a lot of automation. Uh, I think most people consider really the, the first two, the traditional material handling side, the cutting edge stuff, you see the robots and ASRS and drones and things out there. But all automation is driven by the bottom one, data. If you don't have data, you can't automate. You simply cannot do it. Yeah, I can pick up a piece and move it somewhere, but I have to analyze, have some piece of data to understand why I'm doing this, right? Uh, you've seen some great things out here, and how many of you have been here all week? Because it takes about three days to see all that stuff out there. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff, and you're seeing, traditionally the show has been on this stuff, conveyors, kind of boring. It's moved a few years ago into the cool stuff, a lot of the robotic stuff, but now you're seeing more and more analytic companies out there the auto ID companies, you're seeing um, yeah, real IoT data analysis uh, operations going on out there. We rely significantly on that bottom line stuff to help the top two. Uh, one thing I want to point out, just we're going to talk mainly, uh, even though I just talked up data collection, we're going to talk a lot about these things here for an example of what you're doing, and which will fit in well for those since you're not all highly automated. Okay. All right. Any questions so far, by the way? All right, uh, just tag team in the water's automation. This was from MHI study last year, um, and I have not seen the new one yet, which came out today. But this is a uh, list of what adoption trends have looked like now, um, in 2019, and where we're gonna go in the next five years. What the big takeaway is, without reading them all, is that we're looking at significant increases. The, s the smallest increase is 35% on cloud uh, computing and storage. But look at some of the ones out here. We get the robotics. We're going to double. There's more than double, right? So the point is automation trend is going to increase. It's going to increase across the board. We see a lot here in robotics, um, advanced sensors. And then I had a great conversation with somebody before about IoT. 
that IoT is this, with all the data that's out there now, we can capture it through trend analysis and whatnot, you know, from control systems and so on. So that is going to drive these, no doubt about it. Okay. All right. Um, before I move on, though, is anybody using, uh, has recently made a jump into any of these automation trends? No? Okay. Okay. All right, here's a loaded question. So how much and where are the best areas to automate? And this is the audience participation part. <laughs> so what do, what, do you, what do you think is the, the best place to automate? Yep, you had the 80-20 rule. So whatever the, whatever's causing you the most pain, 80% will solve, uh, fix you, 80%, 20% will solve 80% of your problem, right? So. The loaded part of the question, of course, is, whoops, is there is no answer. There's no universal answer. This is where it comes to the most important part of this presentation. You take anything away from this is don't listen to sales guys. Don't listen to anybody else about what has to be automated. You need to understand your operation to know what can be automated um, or what's your pain points to say and should be automated. Uh, we know a lot. We know what's out there. Uh, any, any of my competitors and friends do too, but we don't know your operation nearly as well as you do. We like to think we do, and we maybe have seen similar. We can give you ideas, but you need to help us and anybody else identify what the best place to uh, uh, automate is. Secondly, the right amount of automation is, yeah, everybody wants to provide a lights out, automated full facility, but generally that's not how this starts. You start with an automated area, an area you wish to automate by itself, almost as an island. In a perfect world, it's not an island. You married it with everything else, but it might be, say, shipping systems, print and apply, data management on the inventory control, that kind of thing, is you don't have to do this all at once. And I would almost encourage you never to do it all at once if you've never done automation before. There's a lot of horror stories out there of people who have tried that, and it's not usually worked out well. Okay. So I was in high school. I worked in a distribution center for a little while, off and on job in Walden Books. Anybody remember Walden Books? Anybody remember books? <laughs> So it was, it was store replenishment. There was no e-com, obviously. Uh, and we were just shoving, you know, taking boxes of books to Walden Books Distribution Centers. And I was a temp, right, working there summers, a little in college, too. And what I did is I worked almost every job in that place. And I lived most of what we can see here in, uh, at different times. So the way you generally look at where to put your automation is these four categories. So your worst labor problem operation. The reason I told you about Walden Books is I'm going to give you horror stories now. I was a shipping sorter. I had pick lines come to me, and I had to ship down eight different shipping lanes of full boxes of books. So um, that was not pleasant. And at the end of the day, my arms were killing me because literally all I was doing was pushing a foot pedal to let boxes come to me, and I was shoving them down lanes. Uh, secondly, I was also in shipping for a long time, and so I loaded trucks. And they were floor-loaded trucks of boxes of books. Uh, that was also labor-intensive in addition to just being miserable in the job in the summer. Uh, but I also, sorry, I keep doing that. This job here, the highly repetitive, I also for a while was the guy who taped the boxes and filled them up with styrofoam peanuts, which could have easily been automated, but it was not. It was me and a hopper of peanuts and filling that, uh, the items up. Uh, once again, not, not the best place to, my other friends were working at golf courses and I was working in DC. <laughs> and then the one everybody forgets is error prone. Error-prone tasks, traditionally one is picking. 
is on a paper-based picking, it's so easy to make, you know, check that box in the wrong place. Uh, automation can help, if not do the work, at least help you verify you did it right. Okay. All righty. So what I'm going to do now is, uh, and ignore the spelling mistake up there, you didn't realize right away. The, um, what we're going to do is uh, go through some areas in the operation that have traditionally been automated by themselves, um, in, as islands should say, or as part of a big system. At the end, I'll bring back a whole system and say, here's how we automated the whole thing. Uh, and these are just not all-inclusive. This isn't everything. This is just some ideas to think about. Um, kind of get you wet your whistle. And please join in if you've done any of these things. Love to hear it. So inventory control is critical. And where do you do inventory control? Best place is inbound. When you receive, uh, you, should, you should know what you got in and then know where you put it. So I'm sure, sure a lot of you are doing cycle counts for your inventory control. Think about it. Cycle counts is not a value-added operation to your, uh, or, or value-add to your operation, I should say, right? And they, you just you'd like to magically know where everything is. So without having to go count it all the time, an automated in, uh, cycle counting system will save you money. Will save, God bless you, by the way. It'll save you uh, mistakes, issues, and it'll just make, make your life a lot easier. So uh, what this, this operation here, this happens to be at REI out in Goodyear, Arizona. Um, what we're doing is when we're receiving the product, those uh, inbound cartons are getting labels assigned to them um, right, right inbound, and then they're getting put away. Some are going to see a couple areas to deep storage, some are going to immediate needs and uh, some goods to person workstations. But as soon as the product comes in, the takeaway is that we know where it is, more importantly REI in this case knows where it is and can find it. Okay. And there's a ton of people out here who will do inventory control systems for your widow. As an integrator, we don't typically do inventory control. We marry, we work with other people, but there's a lot of good people out here who can do that. And if you're not automating your inventory control, I really suggest you do. On the more manual, uh, you know, manually handling things on the inbound side, trucks, if they're to full pallet and I pull it out, that's great. But there's a lot of bed-loaded trucks of product coming in or containers. And there's, just as examples, ways you can handle this, uh, the product. The first one here is a, let me leave this one first. This one on the right is a, it's an extendable conveyor. Not, you wouldn't consider that super automation, but many people don't have that. And just by having to put a, uh, a gravity conveyor and slinking things out, it's, it's a bit slow. This extendable conveyor that raises up and down with the drop snoot allows this operator with the platform, of course, to get the stuff up top easier and bring it, and bring it out to the system into whatever the downstream system is. This really cool one from Siemens uh, is a full truck unloader. The truck is outfitted with a belt on the bottom. It's not very expensive. Um, and the whole belt gets pulled out with uh, the product on it, and it falls onto this. Um, this is kind of a simulation for the truck end, onto this roller conveyor and takes it out to a downstream conveyor, which actually can singulate it right here. So they can unload an entire truck in minutes. Uh, there's a number of these, UPS has them, and a, a few other folks. So you do have to outfit the truck, so if you have captain fleet, you can do that. <clears throat> but this is where the industry is going towards a lot of these items. Now, one thing, as I mentioned before, that cell phone company, uh, Siemens did sell one of these to a customer that was doing the same thing. They had a high value item, I can't even mention what it is, and they didn't want anybody to touch it, so they used this system to dump that product out. Okay. Uh, I don't talk about it specifically later, but I'll bring it up right now. On the outbound side is, you see a lot of 
extendables like this to feed product in here and bed load this because you don't want to ship air, right? But you're, the holy grail is to do this in reverse. You see there's a few, few folks out here who have truck loaders, um, but it's just it's still the human's need to go figure out where the nooks and crannies are to put product. Particularly, I'm, I handle parcel side of my company, so with the FedExes and the UPS of the world, that's the holy grail. Everybody's trying to figure that one out. Uh, and you see some are getting close out there, but nobody's really there. So I'm looking forward to next year maybe having a slide that has that. All right. Oh, there was a spelling mistake. I knew it was somewhere. Right. Okay. So we talked about inbounds. Usually what happens after that, you have to manage the orders. Now, uh, there are two levels of management, really three, a hybrid. But two you probably know the best are WMS, the warehouse management system, and maybe some of you know the WCS. The WMS, Warehouse Management System, as uh, you see folks out here, the Manhattan JDs, um, that handle the massaging of the data, massaging of the orders to help uh, send it down to the DC and say, go pick this, go ship this. The Warehouse Control System is really a little lower level. It's the traffic cop. It's the one that tells the conveyors and all the automation what to do. So there's a little gray area because some WCSs do where, um, order picking. Some WMSs push down to the the conveyor control level, but generally not. That's, a, that's kind of the breaking point. Um, there's another hybrid called WES, Warehouse Execution Systems. What's more important than any of these names is their functionality they provide for you. So if you are looking for a, a vendor, you need to talk about realistically what you're trying to get out of it, including your visibility. What level of data do you want to be able to see in any given moment? That's critical. Uh, you can see this one just happens to be a wine and spirits one. These are cases and cartons by door. Um, that we did a few years ago that, that keeps track of everything. So that's on, a, on your phone. You could do that from the console on the, on the work floor. You need to be able to see what's going on. Um, don't get hung up by names because everybody calls it a little different. Um, there's a lot of really cool uh, what's brand names out there. Just ask the questions. Make sure you understand what you need before you try to explain to them uh, what you're looking for. Okay. But this is what's going to make everything else from this point on downstream possible. All right, picking. Uh, different studies show um, diff slightly different numbers, but generally, most DCs have about 65% of their labors in picking. Why? Because traditionally, everybody's walking, right? Zone to zone to zone, walking back and forth. Um, I was a picker too for a while, pushing a little cart, my books. And uh, it's, it's, it's neither fun nor is it productive. Travel time is the worst killer of any operation. And if I'm walking from point A to point B, I'm not actually doing anything. It's useless. So um, not useless, but not useful. Let's put it that way. So what, one of the biggest bangs for the buck you see people do is move on from their manual paper-based picking to some level of automated picking. It could be very low level. It could be just RF guns. Uh, but it can go up to voice. And now some of the vision-based picking systems. Uh, also, more importantly, from the travel perspective, the walking perspective, that is, is the layouts, pick-friendly layouts. So see this one here? This is a, a zone-based. Um, pick module where I've got folks in here who they're not leaving those zones. Their orders coming down a pick and pass system to the zone they need and they just pick what they need for that zone. Now it could still be a paper based system, hopefully not. Hopefully it's a pick to light or a put to light, I should say, or or voice. But the trick is those folks aren't going anywhere most of the day. We had one customer who had to keep their workforce down, they sent all their orders to one zone, then the, then on the floor their crew walked with them to the next zone. And I, we kind of said, well, why are you doing that when your orders are so low? You could have that same crew in the whole pick module and have this all done. But they're, 
manager who had been there for 35 years didn't know how our system worked. It's okay. So, um, I'm not going to go into a lot of the PIC operations. I'm going to talk goods first in a second, but keep, keep in mind, uh, you want to be able to optimally lay out your, your equipment that you're picking, or sorry, your items you're picking. So if it's full case picks for wine and spirits, for instance, I'm going to be probably just have people walk up and down, put it onto a slapper conveyor. If it's really small stuff and I'm not walking so far, I'd probably maybe use a pick to lights. And um, I mentioned voice before. Voice is really good when you have people who do have to walk. So I've got to walk between case, uh, pallet area, pallet area. I'll wear, I'll wear a headset. It's much, much quicker. All right. So goods to person is really what's, in the last few years, really driven pick productivities up uh, big time. So the one on the left is uh, a Kiva system from a few years ago where little robots here are bringing these trays, uh, trays, uh, uh, shelves to, uh, with product on it to people as pack stations out here. And the packer never leaves. Packer stands there, product comes up, I take out what I need, what I'm told to take out, put it into you know, the e-commerce order, send it on its merry way. These just shuffle through, this is your inventory, and it brings the product out here. So you see these running through the, the Autobahn here. This other one is, uh, this is also the REI job a couple years ago. This is from Canap. This is an omni-channel uh, goods-to-person workstation in that it's supporting both store replenishment as well as right behind her is a um, e-commerce uh, direct-to-consumer area. So in this case, there's a big ASRS behind here. It's a multi, or shuttle, I should say, bringing donor totes, the green ones, in, say this is blue shirts. And what she's doing is pulling this product out and putting, told to be put X in these boxes for the stores, you know, one, two, three, four, and then putting stuff behind her to goods to, um, goods to person e-com. So I don't remember the exact number on the pick productivity, but I do number the percentage is that the picking productivity from their traditional system, which was semi-automated, went up 45% here because of this. And they were already doing pretty good, but that person doesn't have to leave. There are I don't remember. There's 120,000 SKUs in that ASRS, uh, and there's only eight operators. Okay. All right. So robotic picking. You saw all the cool robots out there, right? They're everywhere. Um, still not being used as much as you think, but it's, it's growing in um, possibilities and probabilities, maybe is the best way to put that. Um, there's a lot of venture capital money out there, so a lot of those are still think tank items. Uh, but they're, they're coming up the curve. We, and we are using some right now for a couple applications. One key thing key is always been the end effector. How do I pick this stuff up? So you can see this one here with, it has a camera. It's looking in to see what that is. And I'm picking it up and placing it into this tote. This one, look, it's picking up peeps. By the way, I still don't agree with purple peeps. They should be yellow. Um, but this thing, I have used this one, and we've thrown everything at it, and it'll actually pick it up as long as it's got the right, the right suction. There's only a few things that won't, won't work. But now there's some ways we're seeing what, there's robotic picking, but there's also robotic placing. So you'll see some of the people with the sorters out here, instead of having a traditional induction unit or manual induction, they're using robots to do that. Throughput's not very high. It's only around 600 pieces an hour at best, which is it's usually 1,200 uh, pieces per hour per person. So it's getting there, but it's what it is is in some areas where it's a very, uh, say, dangerous area or a, a place you don't really want a human near, the robot will work all night. And so you can use it to augment an, a manual operation too, let it run when nobody's there. 
and I should mention this, almost all the robots nowadays are collaborative robots. So you can actually generally work by the robots. It's not the robot that's the unsafe part, it's the thing it's putting it on probably. All right. Okay, so transport. So one trend, and I didn't mention this before, but I will now, is because of flexibility, scalability, the days of fixed automation is, I don't say it's gonna go away, but we've talked, a lot of people have talked about, I don't wanna keep putting conveyor down when I can, I'm gonna have to tear it out in a couple of years or, or re, re, uh, repurpose it, add on. Um, so you see different transport models out there now. One of them, or two of them are the AGVs, which have been around forever, uh, but we're seeing them in more and more applications. Two is really AMRs, and you've seen quite a few of those out here, and I think um, the guys from Conveco, I think they're doing a presentation tomorrow on that. I would sit on that. Their competitor was really good, and, and they have a, this is a good, good presentation. So the AMRs are the ones over here on the, the right side, and what they are is they can be programmed to do what you want them to do to assist you, to minimize travel for that picker there, or they could be, they could be used as a goods-to-person workstation to bring product over. Uh, it's a gen very generic term, but they are, in fact, autonomous, and they can be guided by many different ways. They don't have to be the old laser um, you know, tape on the floor type thing. You, it's by GPS. It's a number of different ways. And you're going to see more and more of those pop up, and you'll see a lot of them here, and they're being used for sortation, for transport. Um, you, next couple years, that's where I think the real win's going to be. Um, and AGVs have just gotten better and better over years that I can take whole, whole pallet loads to multiple places, and those things can carry cars if they need to. All right. All right. So, okay, say so shipping. Um, this is the front end of the shipping operation. Is the the order order packing. So this picture is here. One is a is a um, auto semi-automated bagging system, where this operator is grabbing product. This is apparel, dropping it in here, printing out the bill the bill of lading, the customer order, drops it in there, seals it, and puts the label on it, and then drops that onto a takeaway belt that goes to an automated sorter. The lower picture here is, uh, these are store replenishment cartons going out. Looks just like the picture from the first slide, but it's not. Um, and we're just putting print and apply on here at, and strapping it just downstream. This is when I talk to people about their biggest pains, that they're not automated. It's usually on this end of the operation. It's the, the back end shipping. It's whether it's, before you get to the shipping sorters, just the print and apply, uh, labeling, bagging, packing. It's a really, really uh, time consuming and usually it's a, it's, it happens at the wrong time. It's when you're trying to get the orders out and if something goes wrong, you're kind of really behind the eight ball. So this way you'll see redundant systems. This one fails, that one fails. That one runs out of paper, that, that, that keeps running. These, we've done a few of these with automated bagging, fully automated. It looks like a, making a ravioli machine. Product goes on there, builds the bag around it, seals it, cuts it, and sends it off. All right. All right. Uh, oh, I forgot, shipping software. Are any of you, you guys rate shopping right now, your product? Okay. That's another big bang for your buck uh, to know who I'm shipping this, whether it's, it's FedEx, it's UPS, it's one of the regional carriers. Um, and that can change day to day, hour to hour. Uh, the whole, you miss a cutoff time, you can you know, change, change your carrier if you need to. Uh, and that goes in with the hand in hand with the shipping labeling, the print and apply uh, of the shipping labels, I should say. Because if I can read it now, know what it is, rate shop it, I don't have to print the label till the last possible second. Okay. All right, sortation. My, my world. So sorters, there's so many high-end high sorters here, and low-end sorters. And by that, I don't mean quality. I mean 
throughput rate. Um, every sorter you look at, you should rate it by what you need it to do, first of all, which is the picking, routing, and shipping. Uh, and then the throughput. Throughput is pieces per hour, pieces per minute, depending on which way you want to look at it. Um, and that drives, oh, I'm sorry, and the product type, and that drives what type of sorter you should put out there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term routing sorters. Picking sorter is usually for piece pick. I, I batch, say batch pick a lot of items. I want to sort it out by order, send it to a foot wall, for instance. Um, that would be a picking sorter. Shipping sorter is kind of self-explanatory. I'm sorting out to dock doors or to shipping locations. The routing sorter is just a generic term that means I'm using the sorter for other functions. I'm routing it to somewhere else in the operation. In the best operations, you can combine the sortation operation, in, uh, sorry, all three of those operations into one sorter. Uh, it's not easy, but you can do it, and routing sorters, particularly with shipping sorters. So if you get one with a high enough throughput, if I'm only gonna have, say, 30% of that product's going to the shipping sorter, the other 70% is getting routed somewhere else in the DC, that's a win because you get the one high-end sorter that will probably be the most efficient for everything that allow you to grow with one sorter. We just recently did a job like that that had um, uh, eight shipping lanes and it had, one, two, three, I think another 12 lane, uh, transport lanes to send stuff to other pick modules. So we sent everything out of one pick module and back to the other pick modules. Okay. All right. Um, just the pictures here, the, depending on the product you're gonna put on there and the rates, you, you look at three different types of sorters. A typical shoe sorter. And I'm, I know it's funny, I tell everybody, I can tell when people aren't in the industry and I say shoe sorter, they go, oh, you only sort shoes? No, those are the shoes. They're pucks and they're sort, sorting boxes. So these are best for, for cartons. However, shoe sorters have really come a long way and they can be used for poly bags, um, postal bags, uh, a lot of soft goods now. So you're seeing more and more uh, opportunities for the, for the shoe sorters to be used. But traditionally, you'll see them in one of these type two of tilted trays. This is a low end, by low end, low rate tilt tray sorter, but it's got many destinations. This one is 535 destinations it's diverting to. Uh, it's for uh, it's FedEx Smart Post, and it's running to items that are going to postal bags. You can see them all lined up here. Um, it, it's about 5,000 an hour, that sorter. It's nothing crazy. Whereas this, this is up upwards. We're running them at you know, close to 18,000 now. And then down in here, this is from uh, Boimer, is a tilt tray sorter. They'll train cross belts are traditionally called loop sorters, and they're, they're the best traditionally for poly bags and soft goods because the product is, uh, I don't have a shoe that can run underneath it, it's sitting on a tray that discharges or a cross belt that discharges perpendicular to the direction of flow. Okay. So we're starting to see a lot of non-traditional sorters out here, and by that I mean just things that you've not been sorting on the, the line sorters, loop sorters. And two I'll point out is this is the pocket sorter. Um, there's a few people here having today, and that's what, when I showed that picture to REI before, the goods to person, I said there was a, something behind the picker there. That's what it was. She's putting in things into a, into a pocket sorter, which goes up into the ceiling, and it'd be one item per pocket. And it sorts items out by an algorithm to say, hey, let me get all this. If you order three things, I'm gonna get those three things to you by marrying them all together at the pack station. So it looks like a dry cleaning store, except there's, there's a bunch of pockets up there and routes it out and sort, through a pretty highly advanced algorithm, sorts out everything at the right time down to the pocket. So it, obviously it's only traditionally only for good stuff, or oh, sorry, light stuff, but there's some opportunities for some heavy bulky stuff. Um, and uh, this has been growing leaps and bounds. You're seeing more and more of these. But you're also seeing sorters like, look like this now. And OPEX, sure sort, they are over that way some way. Um, they have this uh, the sure sort, which is basically based off a mail sorter, 
product inducted here, up, and it runs up a little carousel up and down, I'm sorry, carousel, elevator up and down, and then this way to sort to these bins. What's nice about it is you can see how compact it is. So if you have small product and you don't want to have to walk to a traditional bunch of chutes, it's very, very, very compact. It's also very easy to implement this one. And the best of all of these, I should mention, is this modular. Traditional long sorters are not as modular as you'd like them to be. We can expand them, everybody can, but a loop sorter particularly is tough. This, sorters like this, I just keep adding modules on the back end. All right. Okay. So I, I went through a bunch of islands of automation, if you will. Uh, this, this just quick graphic from, uh, this is from uh, Modern Material Handling a couple years ago. This is a job we did. This is the REI job in Goodyear, Arizona. What's important about it is you, and I'll kind of semi go through the flow. All the things I just talked about are in this, in one operation. Inbound receiving, we start routing product to the right place. We apply labels. We keep our inventory control. We send stuff out to outbound staging or to, in some cases, all the way to retail shipping. It's called immediate needs. As soon as it comes in, it doesn't go to inventory. It goes straight to shipping. Other product goes back into this reserve storage of a lot of rack or the, the, um, the shuttle system, which is really up here. That's the goods to person thing I mentioned before. Product comes out, the goods to person goes on to conveyors to go, cartons to go to conveyors, to go to shipping sorters to the stores, or to the pocket sorter, which comes back downstairs to the direct-to-consumer area where everything's packed out, as I just mentioned. So this customer, REI, is, has been on the automation forefront for a while. This was a really great project for everybody involved, in our opinion, because it was, it was a lead platinum building, it was very green. It's everything they wanted to do, and they're seeing a lot of expansion. So we're real happy. We're a great, great partner of ours. But I like using this chart because it explains some of the little things, how you don't have to do them all, but you can do them all. All right. So here we go for the summary. It's not getting better anytime soon. It's depending on, depending on what happens to the economy now, but it's not getting better anytime soon. You're going to see more and more requirements for um, automation to offset this. Uh, you're going to need to analyze your operation. The other takeaway is, I said a couple times now, only you know your operation better than anybody else. Don't listen to us. And don't avoid automation. It's just, it, it's, it, and that's not just a sales guy talking. If you, we've seen it time and time again. Companies that, don't, that avoided automation are usually not around much longer, and particularly in the last 10 years because the scale of expansion, scale of, I'm sorry, adoption of automation has increased. All right. Well, I did that like six minutes short. Any questions? Comments? On this one? Yeah, sure. Okay, so basically is, uh, and for anybody who wants uh, me to get your information later, I can get you the case study. It's on, it's on, um, MHI has it, and Modern Material Handling has it too, but I'll, I'll, we have it on our website. So the um, product, when it comes in here, is receiving is simply, uh, it's identified, it's scanned. Um, with a, it's got an ASN, of course, right? And then we, REI labels it separately for their own purposes, and then they decide immediately what's going to go back into deep storage, right? And they'll build pallets, or what's going to go to um, immediate needs. So if they identify a carton of, Making up, uh, you know, water bottles, right? I need these things out now. We, we for some reason, we're shorted them. They'll send that, or, or say it's a whole case to a store. They'll send that right um, to the shipping sorter to go to the store lane where we're sorting. But most of the time, what happens is we'll take some of that. We'll go into that um, 
the, um, the ASRS, which really it's a multi-shuttle, OSR, CANAPS OSR, um, put stuff away for, for picking later. But we'll put a lot back in, into uh, deep storage. Now, when I say it goes into the OSR, the way we, we do it is take the, the vendor carton that came in, open it up, unpack it, and it's called decant. You decant it into a tote. Uh, the reason is the totes last a lot longer in the ASRS than anything else. So it's decanted there, and now it comes out, and it's pulled out later for, this is, this is tough, you can't count, use the numbers. Uh, I want to go up to here. If this is the multi-shuttle, when the product comes out, it comes out to these eight workstations here. That's where I'm now doing my store, store replenishment picks and my e-com picks. So physically taking stuff out of the donor tote and putting it into one of the four store replenishments I could do at a time. If I have an e-com, and the little screen in front of me is telling me all this, I should point out, automation, right? I pick it up and I put it into the pocket behind me. Pocket just goes away. So I'm just directed nonstop from what to do with that screen. Traditionally, they do pick to the extent the store replenishment first, or, or load those up, and then start doing the e-com so they don't have to turn around all the time. But um, that's a minor point. So at that point, whoops. Um, the pockets are in a mezzanine up and above this area, and they're literally running around, you know, like that. They come back down, and I'll use those first two, those auto baggers operations. Come down, if I had three, three shirts, you know, one's red, one's blue, one's green, they come down in order to me, and all that comes to the operator. The packer gets only what he or she needs to pack at that point. They pack it. Um, in that case, it's, they put into a poly bag most of the time. There are cartons, too. And then they'll seal it. Well, press the button, it seals, applies the label, drops on a conveyor. It goes to a shipping sorter, which in our case was uh, like that orange one, that one at Smart Post I showed you. The, if it's a carton, it goes to a line sorter. It gets sorted that way. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, the, doo -doo -doo -doo. the outbound, oh, the outbound shipping sorter is over. There's another, oh, there's retail shipping sorters here. So that's store replenishment cartons. Those are two shoe sorters that are sorting product out. Okay. That kind of give you an idea? Do the rapid fire version. Took, took three years to build it and ten, five minutes to talk about it. So, all right. um, any other questions? Okay. Comments? Anything else on here? Well, okay, if there's nothing else, I appreciate your time. Um, I'll, uh, once again, my name is Jim McLafferty. I think it's on the last slide. Yeah. So there's my, there's my email. Feel free to email me if any questions you have. Uh, I know this is going to be up and ready for. Uh, review online at some point soon. I don't know the, the story right now about that. But, um, but anything, please stop by and see me. I'm still here tomorrow back there in booth 3019 30, 30, and 2819, which is that, that corner back that way. All right. Well, thanks for coming. I appreciate it.